welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and Happy New Year. We are in, and I think I've probably said this on the podcast in the past, we are in the period that uh, of the year that the Swedes called Melendargana, the days in between, which is just that, the days in between Christmas and New Year's, which they sort of take as an extended kind of holiday. And, right? and all sane people do, but we record podcasting. Yes. Right. But, uh, but but so I love Melendargana, so, so happy Melendargana to you, David. Well, thank you. <laughs> all right, so it's been a, a, a bit, I guess, of time since our, our last episode, so we want to apologize for that. We'll explain in a minute why we've had a long hiatus, but Frank, I think you had some messages you wanted to send to listeners. Yes, yes, yes. Thanks, David. So so first off, I want to thank uh, Peter in Canvas Lang and, and Joe in London, both of whom uh, got in touch to uh, give us some positive feedback about our World Cup episode. Um, and, given <laughs> and my profound <laughs> ignorance about that entire sport. That's good. <laughs> well, given given that we were, um, you know, uh, out of our comfort zone yes. uh, on that one, uh, we, we, well, we always appreciate listeners and listeners' feedback, but the you know, it was nice to hear from both both Joe and, and Peter on that. One thing I would say by way of follow up, I read an essay recently. In a, there's a there's a um, there's a very good very literary uh, quarterly about soccer football uh, called the Blizzard, which might be familiar to some of our readers. And uh, listeners, I, I I read an episode. Uh, sorry, I read an issue uh, a few weeks ago, and there was an essay. Uh, I think it's from volume thirty five of the Blizzard. And I should have the author at hand, and I don't. So we'll have to add that into our social media feed. Uh, about the New York Cosmos and what's happened to the New York Cosmos since the end of the North American Soccer League. Wait, so and, it is still, I thought like the franchise would have died with the league. Well, you see, David, you're thinking in, in North American terms, in terms of franchises. Okay. Whereas the club still exists, and uh, there's been a kind of tangled history of what happened to the name and of the club itself. The club now plays in the lower divisions of American soccer in the greater New York area in leagues. That's fascinating. However, what's really fascinating is they're closely associated with the anti-fascist movement. And NYFC, which is one of the major league soccer franchises in New York, and I use franchise mm-hmm. here deliberately, uh, has a, and is partially owned by uh, Man City, Manchester City here, um, NYFC, unfortunately, has an element in their support, which has nothing to do with the club, but it, that's attached themselves to the club, that is rather fascist. And, and, and the supporters of some of the supporters or so-called supporters of NYFC, according to this essay, and the now still existent New York Cosmos have actually had sort of rather violent altercations over the past few years uh, in various club uh, and cup competitions when, when the teams have, have, have come into contact with each other. And it's a sort of, if you will, European-style fan violence yeah, that we don't... Uh, which you don't uh, tend to see as much of in the United no, States. No, no, no. It's quite fascinating because, you know, in the United States, we seem to have perfected almost all forms of violence except sports fan violence. We have some of it, but not like they have associated with mm. soccer around the world. Uh, but there are elements of that in the, in the, in the rivalry between... NYFC and the New York Cosmos. Sorry, I don't want to belabor this, but I, 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 the essay struck me because I thought, oh, I wish I'd read this before yeah. we did our episode. So the New York Cosmos still exists, and there's a kind of there's a political violence around the, their, their, some of their fans uh, who tend to be on the left uh, as opposed to some of the supporters of NYFC. So anyway, that wasn't why we're here, though. Yeah, but okay. so thanks to Joe and Peter for, for getting in touch about that episode. But David, one reason we haven't been, or a couple of reasons we haven't been recording over the past few weeks is because you've been busy. I have been busy, yes. <laughs> Busier than normal. Uh, not just doing your usual scholarship and teaching, but actually, so you moved house, and everybody knows that moving is incredibly stressful. Yes. And you served on a jury, and I have not yet served on a Scottish jury, but you've now done so. Uh, do you want to offer your reflections on that experience? Don't talk about the case, the case but just yes. talk about your experiences. Um, yeah, so I don't want to talk about the case, but it was in the the, the high court, court here in Edinburgh, which is the court that deals with serious crimes, and this was uh, undoubtedly a, a set of serious crimes. Um, and it was fascinating in as much as, you know, if you're on a most, I think all the other jurors were also sort of neophyte jurors. And so I think most of what everybody on the jury knew about what being on a jury was like was derived from American television or English television. And the English jury system is slightly different than the Scottish jury system. Um, 
And so the, there was a lot of the judge explaining how juries and evidence and courts work here in Scotland and the ways in which they are uh, different from uh, what, what they might look like on TV. Uh, you know, so there are 15 jurors, for instance, on a, in a Scottish trial. The rules of evidence are slightly different. Um, you know, there were no opening speeches by the uh, statements by the by the uh, lawyers for both sides. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fascinating as a I mean, I've always wanted to be on a jury. Um, and now that I've done it, I'm not sure I want to do it again anytime soon, at least not for a case like this. But uh, I was glad to do my civic duty. So when will you have to do it again? I think they said I'm I'm off for five years before I can be called again. Right, because I. Although was, they said if we can we if we want to we can serve sooner than that. So I I was called recently, but mm. I did the thing that'll be familiar to some of our mm. Scottish listeners, where you you phone the court the night before and they say we don't need you tomorrow, call again tomorrow mm. in twenty four hours. And I did you do that for several days, and if they don't need you, they don't need you. But I think you go back into the pool, so yes. I would imagine that I'll be called probably sooner than you will. One would imagine, yes. So just point of clarification before we, we, we go on. The essay in question that I was citing is called Rebellion and the Cosmos. It's by a man named Joshua Stevens, and it's in, as I say, volume 35 of The Blizzard. So the full title is Rebellion and the Cosmos, How Football in New York Has Become a Battleground in the Fight Against the Far Right. Actually, I, I would commend it to all of you. Okay. You, can, you can go, you can read some of the articles from the Blizzard if you're interested in, in football and football history um, uh, at their website, which I think is... Blizzard Co. UK, mm. um, uh, and I think you can read some for free. So, so that would be a good one to start with. Okay. Anyway, sorry, sorry about that. So, what we want to do is, we, we thought, David, in terms of uh, thinking about the end of the year, is um, as the year comes to an end, and because lots of stuff has been happening in the time in the mm. few weeks we've been away, um, not just Argentina winning the World Cup. By yes. The way. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I suggested to you in the run up to, to today that we might almost do a kind of uh, catch-all, uh, catch-all uh, omnibus episode <laughs> exactly. to try and tie up some of the threads. So the big stories that have happened since since uh, we last spoke, I think, are the release of the January 6th report, the final report, uh, which I confess I haven't yet read because no, it's a thousand pages long. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but I've read the news coverage. But also, I think that's a if you will, a kind of category for the what might be said is the kind of trials and tribulations of Donald Trump since the midterm elections. I think which the, have been the, significant. Yeah, yes. the end of the year is not has not been kind to former President Trump. So I think I think we can think about that. I think we could think about um, President Zelensky's visit to Washington from last week mm. and try to provide some context for that. And then. Uh, another thing that occurred to me, which we may or may not have time to get to, because we do tend to talk a lot, listeners, uh, would be um, the, the current um, uh, situation, if that can be called that, with regard to Twitter and the social media landscape, uh, thanks to Elon Musk's purchase of, of Twitter, but also, yeah. yeah. So, so that, that's what I had in mind, but I don't know what you well, so, so mean. To... One of the things that strikes me is that this is often a slow... December after a midterms is often a very slow news month. It's right? supposed to be, sure. It, it, and and this has not been, right? We usually think about the, the what are often called the, the lame duck <laughs> sessions of Congress as being times when very little, if anything, happens. Sometimes the lame duck sessions don't even meet. Um, and, and, you know, we think about what's happened during this lame duck. We've had, you know, Zelensky uh, coming to, to Washington, addressing Congress, meeting with with. President Biden, we've had the January 6th committee, as you point out, give their final report, their final report in part because some of the people in that committee are going to be leaving Congress itself, I think, uh, very shortly. Most and control Liz Cheney. And control of, Congre uh, control of the House will be shifting to Republicans uh, in January, um, you know, and the passage of an enormous spending bill, uh, which I think is going to be signed by President Biden any day now. Uh, one point seven trillion dollars to keep the government running uh, for the at least the next little bit, uh, which includes not only uh, funding for lots of things, but also especially funding for Ukraine, overhaul of the Electoral Count Act, and a bunch of other uh, odds and ends that were thrown into that. So it's a, it's an interesting moment that we've had such a busy political month. Yeah, David, I, I'm gonna I want to make a provocative suggestion to you. Right. 
I suspect you and I agree on most of the actions that Congress has been taking in the past few weeks, in the run-up to the, in this final session. Mm. I, I, I don't know. We haven't sure, discussed it in great detail, but I have a feeling that we probably think these are mm. probably uh, legitimate steps. However, is this kind of uh, burst of activity contrary to the spirit of democracy in the sense that, and mm. I want to refer to January 6th, one of the problems, one of, one of the reasons we had such difficulty in the United States in the period between the last presidential election in November 2020 and the inauguration of President Biden in January of 2021 is because the party in power at that point, particularly the leader of the party in power, as the January 6th committee has revealed, refused to accept the outcome of the election and acted to, to, to overturn that yes. and, 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 and obstruct, obstruct the transfer of power, etc., etc. We've talked about that and we probably will talk about it again. One could argue that the voters rendered a verdict in mm. November of this year and the Biden administration and the Democrats in Congress, the lead, Democratic leadership in Congress, is enacting to get all their work done before they hand over power to Kevin McCarthy. Or if, who, if, if, it's, if yes, it's Kevin exactly. McCarthy, yes. well, we'll say Kevin McCarthy for now, and the Republicans. Are, they're not breaking the law. I think that's a crucial distinction. Mm. But but they're acting contrary to the spirit of democracy. And one of the problems we have in the United States is there's this lame duck period between an election and when new people take office. Respond. Discuss. This was an essay question. Is, is this the say? Is this similar to what happened two years ago? Or if it's if oh, not, why will, not? It's well, I think it's fundamentally different in as much as you know, the sitting Congress is is the sitting Congress until January 3rd when the new Congress is sworn in, you have a new speaker elected and all the kinds of things. The you know window between when the election happens and when the new people take office, of course, is, is much shorter now than it used to be. In your period and in my period and up until the 1930s, you know, that doesn't, that shift, uh, the new people don't take office until, until March. So there was a much longer window and a much longer room for this sort of disjuncture between what the voters have said and what, you know, who was actually holding office. So we think about things that have happened during that window. You know, that's the period in time. Uh, in probably the most famous example is in 1860, 1861, in which southern states secede and leave the Union before Abraham Lincoln takes office in March of 1861. Um, you know, since then, uh, you know, since the 1930s, when you've had this move to, to January with the 20th Amendment and the start of Congress um, on, on the January 3rd, um, sometimes the lame duck sessions are very busy and sometimes they are not. Uh, and actually, oftentimes they're not. Uh, Congress between uh, 1956 and 1968 didn't meet at all during the lame duck session. And it also didn't meet between 1984 and 1992. So what, they kind of knocked off at Thanksgiving and didn't come back? Uh, they knocked off actually before, thing, they, after the, between the election and January 3rd, they didn't meet at all. Right. Interesting. Uh, so, you know, there are times in which Congress doesn't meet during that session. It doesn't have to meet. Um, there are times in which it meets only for a very specific reason. Uh, so in 1954, for instance, the Senate came back into session just to cens censure Joseph McCarthy. Um, so that happened. Um, in 1998, uh, Congress came back into session for the impeachment of Bill Clinton. So that was, again, where they're doing it for a very specific purpose. Um, but it's a session in which sometimes it's very busy, but oftentimes it's not. There's a few times in particular where it has been very busy. It was very busy during the Second World War. Obviously, they have a lot of stuff to deal with, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, it was very busy in 1974. Uh, and this is after the Nixon resignation, after Ford uh, takes office, um, in which Congress passes 138 pieces of legislation wow. during the lame duck session. A bunch of those are very small, but a bunch of them were also things like expanding the Freedom of Information Act, uh, preventing Nixon from keeping his own papers, uh, approving... Uh, 
Nelson Rockefeller as vice president. Uh, so they were very busy that year, uh, 2002, uh, after, so after 9-11. Um, they created the Department of Homeland Security during the lame duck session. Um, you know, and sometimes it can be very contentious, like in uh, 2018, so in the recent past. Um, it was the failure to pass the budget during the lame duck session um, because of a fight over Trump's border wall uh, that led to a five-week government shutdown. So it can be an important moment. Well, sure, but is there a correlation between the uh, basically the parties changing hands, Congress changing hands, and how active the session is? Or is it, is no, it not I that well, simple? I think it's not that simple. And one of the things I think it's made it more important in recent years is that Congress has had a much more difficult time over the past three decades than it has historically about coming up with a budget. And, you know, one of the things they had to do in this session to prevent the government shutdown was pass this omnibus $1.7 trillion spending bill to keep government open. Um, you know, and they were actually supposed to pass this months ago, but the way that Congress works, it, that just didn't happen. Um, and, and this time it happened with some Republican votes for it. Not many in the House, but actually a decent number in the Senate. Um, you know, and it was a, like most of these huge omnibus spending bills. Not everybody, nobody liked everything in it, but it was, you know, managed to keep the government open, which I guess is a good thing. Many people like something in it. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, it keeps a lot of the sort of necessary functions of government running, um, you know, and it included funding. I mean, the big sort of new inclusions for it was the funding for Ukraine um, and the, the Electoral Count Act uh, revisions. So, I mean, so system. to answer my own question, yeah. I mean, I do think there's, there, there is a crucial difference here. And I think uh, thanks for that history, because yeah. that, that gives some context for it. So this is not unprecedented. What we've seen in the past month is not or six or eight weeks, isn't it an attempt to overturn the results of the election in November? Mm. It's a response to those, and it's kind of, a, if you will, a calculated political response. It's been completely legal. Yes. Uh, and, of course, the election result was not unequivocal. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 the election, the midterm election was, was, was a mixed result. And I wonder if there's a distinction to be drawn between a lame duck session during a midterm, in the aftermath of a mm -hmm. midterm election, as opposed to a presidential election. Because I think in a presidential election, you do get a, you normally get a clear outcome, mm -hmm. <laughs> a clear verdict from the people. And one can argue that a lame duck president pursuing his, and eventually her, agenda when the public has rejected that is perhaps less acceptable than kind of business as usual in Congress and trying to get your work done yeah. before you hand over. Well, the, I think. Do, that, do you see know, what I mean? Thinking about the examples I point out, very none of those are in the cases of, of presidential elections. Those were all midterm elections right. for, for 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 Congress. So, um, you know, and, and the president's obviously uh, who has either been voted out of office or who is leaving after the end of his second term. You know, is often doing other things during that window, whether that's issuing pardons, dealing with other kinds of executive orders, and what have you. Stuffing classified documents into your golf bag. <laughs> that too. Yes, that is the, the denying the results of the election, all kinds of things that one can do during that window. Um, so it, it has been a, a very busy um, lame duck session. Okay, thanks for, thanks for that, David. Uh, and, and so I, I asked my question to be provocative, but I, 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 I do think there's a, there's a huge difference between what we're seeing now. And what we're seeing now, as you demonstrated, it's fairly normal. Yes. Um, as opposed to what we saw. So let's start with, with, with the Trump stuff, because there's a bunch of Trump stuff starting with the January 6th commission. And obviously, Trump was very invested in this midterm, and many of his candidates did not end up winning. Um, Almost all of them. So, so, so tell me about how, how we make sense of Trump's uh, lame duck uh, month. I think, and I hesitate to make predictions because whenever we make predictions we're proved wrong this has been a very bad period for president trump i won't say he's he's done but i think he's i think he is wounded he's badly wounded within his own party mm. i think he's got he's faces uh 
significant legal jeopardy. We might get to that in a minute. The fact that the January 6th committee recommended that the Justice Department pursue uh, criminal charges against him is is significant. I think there were four different yeah. accounts that they, they recommended. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so so there's that. Uh, there are the the usually his tax returns were released by the House Ways and Means mm. Committee. That was again one of the things that was done during the lame duck. Uh, that's interesting, and of course it confirmed a lot of what was reported earlier. The, the remember the New York Times. Um, investigation before the election of looking at Trump's returns. Notably, that he doesn't have nearly as much money as he claims. Um, That's why he's selling NFTs. And well, stuff. yes, and then there was the big announcement when he, uh, you know, announced that he, you know, his big announcement was that he was selling these NFT images of himself, which are comical because but they're, they're so really absurd. Ugly. Well, they're nuts. Um, but that was his big announcement, and, and since he's announced he was running for president, and the Day or you know, a couple of days after the midterms, he hasn't made any public appearances, which is strange. Which is very strange for somebody who you know he he's hanging out in Mar-a-Lago. He raised four and a half million dollars, I think, from the NFT sales, which sounds like a lot, but isn't really mm-hmm. uh, in the grand scale of things, uh, scheme of things for him. Uh, he's been pretty. He hasn't been quiet, but he hasn't been as active as one might expect. And all of this suggests to me that he's in trouble. What mm. do you think? I mean, he's, he's in legal trouble, and we, we should get to that. But yes. I, I think he, he's now been identified as a loser because you know, his candidates have lost three straight elections. Yes. And, 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 and the thing that he hates most is being, you know, being a loser. loser right? Um, I mean, the question about how his legal trouble and his efforts to run for president again. How those two things intersect is going to be fascinating. Yeah, it's a real dilemma for the Justice Department, I think. It's a, yeah, because obviously the January 6th committee recommended the indictments on on four counts. Um, But they can't pursue any of those uh, prosecutions that has to go through the Justice Department. Um, You know, the Justice Department, I think, is, is, as you point out, a conundrum. Can you prosecute somebody who is actively running for the highest office in the land and how does that work and how can you do that in a way that isn't perceived as being inherently political um because the justice department is part of the executive branch branch and is supposed to be both part of the executive branch but also separate from the white house and supposed to be non-political and you know it tries very hard to maintain that um separation and, and 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 uh facade if you will um you know, but the wheels of justice move very slowly. Um, but they are moving. They are moving, right? But and and the question then is is you know how will the those two things line up? What ends up happening if he is indicted? What happens if he is you know arrested? What happens if who knows? Right? There's all kinds of and 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 there are both um, criminal and civil um, proceedings against Trump and Trump associates going forward in a number of locations both in federal and in state courts. So what's your take on this? I mean, you asked me my take, but yes, what's your? I, I mean, well, I think you know Trump's going to play it the way that the, the you'd expect him to. He's going to say, look, I'm being targeted here by my political enemies. This is entirely politically motivated. It is without merit. The people who are Trump supporters are going to, I think, buy that because that seems to be a line of argument that he's used in the past and it's been successful uh, in that respect. Uh, at least among the, that hardcore Trump constituency. Um, I think the primaries are going to be very interesting to see whether anybody runs against Trump for the Republican nomination. Um, and if so, what their stance is on, on any of these things. I mean, I think the content of the January 6th report will be very interesting. Mm. We've seen a lot of it. So I watched the hear- a lot of the hearings I followed the news reports. Again, I've got, got to confess, I'm like a student going into tutorial. I'm, I'm about to opine on something mm. I haven't read. <laughs> um, but but if the content of the report based on, on the news reports mm. I've read uh, thus far is such that, you know, there's a lot of evidence in that report coming from Trump world. These are people, these are people who are aides in the White House, in some cases quite serious people mm. who are testifying uh, under oath I think a lot of the evidence that's coming out of that is going to be damning and hard to refute. Now, you're correct, it seems to me, that um, Trump's hardcore supporters, and I, I, think, I guess the real question is, how large a segment of the Republican electorate is, is that, is that yeah. group? 
Trump's hardcore supporters love Trump. No, you know, they if they didn't jump after the Access Hollywood tape or whatever, what you know, whatever the outrage du jour was, exactly. you know, we've had seven, almost seven years of this. They're not going to leave now. Sure, I get that, but it's what happens to leaving aside his legal jeopardy, his political jeopardy. What happens to the rest of the Republican electorate when it comes to selecting um, the president, uh, our presidential nominee? That that's the key question, and if by some way, in some, some manner, he gets through and wins the nomination. And he could, mm. because, you know, he people counted him out back in 2016, and including yes. me. And, and me. Yeah, and yeah. that was a mistake, because clearly, you know, he does have an appeal in that, he has purchase in that electorate. I think he's weaker going into the general election than he would have been, than he was back in 2016. Mm. Um, he's older, he's possibly diminished, <laughs> but, but also... You know that that testimony, all that he's got a lot more baggage now than he did then, and he had a lot then. Um, so, so I think he's in a, I think he's in a very difficult position now. I, I don't, and I think there's a tendency because the press, like us, got it wrong back yes. in 2016. Everybody assumes he's still, you know, he's got this invincible hold. Well, I, I think the and first, I don't think he does. I think the first test we're going to find actually is, is really how united the Republican Party is. And I think one of the places we're going to see that is actually in a few days when we're going to have an election for the Speaker of the House, where in order to become elected Speaker of the House, you have to have the majority of people who are present voting on that particular day. And Republicans are going to have a majority in the House, but there are a handful of Republicans who have said they are not voting for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker, which means that Kevin McCarthy is not going to win on the first ballot. Uh, assuming those people don't change their mind or get, you know, their arms twisted appropriately. Um, and that hasn't happened in a century. Like, we're gonna have, there are going to be multiple ballots for Speaker of the House and trying to figure out where really is the power located within the Republican Party. Is it with relatively centrist or moderate Republicans, in as much as those exist anymore, or are they with, um, you know, how much power does the... the fringe uh, elements the Republican Party have. Well, and given that their minority is so small, or their majority, excuse me, yeah. is so small, they've all got power. We, we've mm. seen this, you know, with the inordinate amount of power that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema had um, yes. in the last session of the Senate uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, you know, every vote counts in that circumstance, which means every constituency counts. Mm. And so it will be a very interesting situation. I mean, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy has wanted to be Speaker of the House for as long as I can remember, and probably uh, for much longer than that. And um, if you don't like Kevin McCarthy, you should wish that he gets what he wants, because I think it's going to be a miserable time as Speaker of the House. Yes. I mean, John Boehner, the, the, one of the last Repub one of the more recent Republican Speakers of the House, you know, his account of what it was like trying to keep that coalition together is going to be a very hard job, and he's going to be put through hell by his own side, frankly, I, I think, and, and we'll see that with the election. So you're right. We're gonna we're gonna find out a lot about the about the uh, makeup of the Congress in the in the next, um, particularly the Republican side of Congress in the next week or so. Um, but I, I, I guess the question is, what does that say about Trump? Now we're supposed to provide some historical context for this, and I I was thinking I've been thinking a lot about this, and the closest analogy I could come up with. And it's not a great one. Mm. Uh, was with, and this is with respect to the possible charges that Trump could face, including insurrection and obstruction of Congress, among others. Is the treason trial of Aaron Burr in 1807? Huh. Insofar as Burr was tried for treason in 1807 after he had been vice president. Mm. So he, Burr is the... the, the um, kind of highest ranking government official I can think of who was prosecuted by the United States. Yeah. Right? And so Trump is even higher ranking because he was a, he was the president. <laughs> they were assuming the charges go ahead, and they may not, but let's assume for the sake of this argument that they do, or this conversation they do. Then Trump would be, again, would be the highest ranking former official to be tried. They both were tried, or will have been tried, mm -hmm. after they served in office. Crucially, 
Trump will be tried for actions he took while in office, whereas Burr was tried for treason. Burr was not tried for shooting Alexander Hamilton. He was tried for treason, and the treason he allegedly committed, he was acquitted, by the way, um, occurred after he left office. So, so the, the, the comparison isn't exact, but that's, that was the closest I could come up with, and that was a highly partisan political trial. Now, what was the treason that, right, remind the listeners about what the treason that Burr was supposed to have committed? It's about like Western states breaking off. Yes, and yeah, yeah. Kind so, of independent. So, so Burr collected a group of mercenaries and ne'er-do-wells and, and sailed down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers um, with the intention of doing something. To this day, historians can't agree on what he, what he was planning to do. According to the Jefferson administration... Burr was seeking to form a confederacy of western states and territories. So we're talking about the modern states of Mississippi and Alabama um, and detaching them from the Union and creating a western republic, which he would be the head of, or possibly a western empire of some kind. Okay. Burr, Burr. claimed... Sorry? King Burr. Yeah, yeah, King Burr. King Aaron I. Um <laughs> Burr claimed that actually what he was doing was organizing a filibustering expedition. And you know all about filibustering mm -hmm. expeditions. These are these expeditions that went outside the borders of the United States, basically to expand the borders of the United States. And so he was going to go after the Spanish. Yeah. This is a different usage, by the way, yeah. listeners, of filibuster than in what happens in the Senate. That's right. Uh, but, but that he was leading an expedition against the Spanish west of the Mississippi River. Ah, okay. In modern Texas, effectively. And, the, and there are lots of examples in the early 19th century in American history of, you know, near-do-wells and, and gangsters going out of the country and going starting to Mexico or Cuba or Nicaragua. Or Florida yeah. Yeah. or, you know, etc. And that he was doing that and therefore it was okay. <laughs> um, it's not clear. He, he may not even have been clear in his own head. I'm not actually an expert on... on the, the, and the details are incredibly confusing of the Burr trial and the Burr, but 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 uh, and in this sense, the analogy also the comparison breaks down because we we have a pretty clear idea of what happened on January six. Uh, we don't know everything, but we know a lot. Um, and the, the 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 facts, the the basic facts around the Burr case, as I said, are still in dispute. Um, so so the comparison is isn't a gr isn't perfect. But it's the best one I can mm. come up with. And what's interesting is some of the same issues that came up that I suspect will come up around the Justice Department's decision, whichever way it goes, that this is a political decision. Either, you know, the Biden administration is persecuting its political rival or it capitulated in the face of political opposition and didn't pursue mm. justice. These questions came up around Burr because... Now, interestingly, Burr and Jefferson were of the same party, so the president and the person being accused were on the same side politically. That's that's a crucial difference. Uh, but you know, this was a this was partisan. This is this is the uh, abuse of power to go after a political rival and enemy, uh, and it was overreached by on the on behalf of the government. And there are some ugly aspects of this for the Jefferson administration. So, so I think the Burr case does reveal the difficulties around prosecuting prominent politicians, mm. even when they seem to have committed blatant misdeeds. I, I, I remember I was in a conversation earlier this summer with a, with a British graduate student, a Scottish graduate student, who basically said, was very dismissive, uh, and saying, well, you know, the, 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 there's no justice in the United States. The government's afraid of Trump. They won't do it. You know, and, mm. and I said, well, you know, that, it's, it's, it's not that simple. The, the decision whether to prosecute Trump or not is a very very complicated one. It's a you know and and there's a case to be made against prosecuting mm. pursuing Trump. Um, well, it's both a political decision and a legal decision. That's right. And, the legal and, decision is incontrovertible, frankly. But. Yeah. Um, but, but then you know the question then you know is is as Attorney General Merrick Garland is is trying very hard to maintain the Justice Department as being above politics but how do you be above politics and then either prosecute or not prosecute people for engaging in politically motivated crimes um so it, it's um yeah yeah and it should be said aaron burr was not a likely candidate to run for president in 1808 whereas trump is already running for president in 2024 exactly. so this is a complicated anyway that can you think of another uh, a comparable 
period, well, or, or is, is there a historic precedent for this apart from that? No. I mean, I think there, there, there were some prosecutions at the end of the Civil War, but they never, they, they very consciously decided not to go after Jefferson Davis and um, other Confederate leaders in the way they could have, right? You know, for treason and other things um, because of the thought that, because of some thoughts about what the political consequences of that would be for the country, whether that was actually in the best interests of the nation to, you know, lock up every Confederate general and political leader, because that would have been, um, at least in some people's minds, disastrous. I, I want to move on to yes. Zelensky's visit. However, let me, let me, let me, again, I want to take this to its kind of, I want to pursue this a little bit more. I believe Trump should be prosecuted mm. for, for the crimes, um, which have, the uh, that have been uh, that he's been accused of. I mean, the, the evidence seems to be quite strong, and I think the January sixth committee did really good work for. Um, and I say this as a historian, you know, getting the rec- getting stuff on the record. Yes. I, I, uh, however, so having stipulated that, let, let me make the case against. Basically, Trump's crimes are there for everyone to see. The record is the record; it can't be ch- changed. Mm. In the same way, they did, you know. Jefferson Davis, everybody knew what Jefferson mm. Davis did, even though he wrote the world's longest, most boring memoir to try and <laughs> refute it. <laughs> um, so Trump is effectively under house arrest in Mar-a-Lago. He doesn't leave now. He plays golf. He, he, he's, he's, he's living in the world's tackiest prison. Um, and he's got to live with the fact that the world knows he's failed. That mm. it's all on the record. And if, if as I... One possibility, which is a greater possibility now than it was in 2016, that this presidential run ends in humiliating defeat. Yeah. Isn't that the comeuppance? Is that comeuppance enough? No, I don't think it is. Okay, fair uh, enough. I, 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 I think, you know, as a determining, mean, one of the things that criminal prosecutions do, and I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously, in, in uh, since I was on a jury, you know, is is not only to to punish the individual, but also to dissuade other people from um, committing similar crimes. And um, you know, I think I think allowing you know, even if he is you know hanging out in Mar-a-Lago and not going out as much as he used to, that's Mar Mar-a-Lago is not a prison. Right. I mean, okay. No. I, well. Yes. It's my idea of hell, but it's now, not a prison. <laughs> you know, Jefferson Davis actually was put in prison for over a year, um, you know, as the awaited not having trial. But uh, I mean, I, I want to stipulate I agree with you. I was just p- kind of playing that out, out because I think we need to prepare ourselves for a world where he's not prosecuted. I think that's entirely possible. Yeah. So, we, so, so let's not forget, though, that the first Trump impeachment arose because of the Trump administration's desire to shake down President Zelensky of Ukraine for information about Hunter Biden um, and to use against Joe Biden. And so there, you know, I, I, this, there's, is, there's, this is an awkward segue. So let's talk about Vladimir's, uh, Vladimir Zelensky's visit to, to Washington last week. Just before Christmas, he visited. Um, impressions, thoughts... Uh, one thing that's quite striking is there are images of, of Zelensky's visit when he visited Trump a few years ago and pictures of him with Biden. And, and what is striking about them, despite the fact that, you know, it, it, all the things that Zelensky's gone through in between those two things, is he looks a lot happier standing next to Biden than he did next to Trump. Uh, he looks a lot more comfortable. Obviously, their relationship is of a very different nature. Um, I think it's, a, a you know, of very important visit i think you know in terms of u.s support for ukraine part of this big bill the omnibus bill they just passed uh, included lots of of additional funding for ukraine um this war has gone on a lot longer than i think anybody anticipated it's only been 10 months david well 10 months is up you know it is a long time but yes when i think about yes it started in february of this year when we teach history, we think, oh, well, a year's not very long. Well, it turns out 10 months it's is a really a long, long time, time. But it's likely to continue for a long, long time. time. Right. And, and I think there were many people who were anticipating this, this being a very short war. Um, and, and clearly that's that's not the case. And, and so the question, I think, then becomes, 
you know, thinking about what this visit means is, is you know, what does U.S. support for Ukraine look like in the, the next year if this war continues for, a, you know, another 12 months, which it seems like it very likely will. Um, I think it seems likely that the war will continue as long as uh, Putin wants to continue fighting it. And I can't see a scenario in which he says, oh, well, never mind, we lost that one, wrap it up. Um, you know, and, and then what does it, you know, mean in terms of, of U.S. foreign policy that we are going, that the United States and other nations as well, um, including the U.K., are going to be, you know, supporting uh, the Ukrainian uh, government and the Ukrainian military effort uh, for the foreseeable future. What do you think? In terms of Zelensky's visit? Or yes. He, well, I, I, I mean, think... I think you can't divorce the, you know, the visit. Well, and clearly, I mean, uh, and this this speaks to what we where we began, the timing of this was deliberate to get that funding bill passed before the new Congress sits. Yes. It's going to be much more difficult in the new Congress. There's much more skepticism about Ukraine. Although it's not universal, this could be an issue that divides... The MAGA wing from the other Republicans. Yeah, there does seem to be a big division within. You know, there there are vestiges of the old internationalist wing of the Republican Party that are reasserting themselves, um, that support Ukraine, um, and combined with the Democrats could possibly form a majority, but it's going to be much more difficult in, uh, come next year than it than it than it is now uh, to get that funding through. So so clearly, the Biden administration is aware of this, as is. President Zelensky, and it was pretty, uh, you know, the politics of it were pretty sophisticated. We've learned one. We've learned one thing in the past ten months that Zelensky, who of course was a TV comedian before he became president, is no clown. He's he's a very sophisticated leader, and he understands. We know this from the very beginning, and it goes back to the way he was dressed in Congress. Mm -hmm. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, he understands, as a TV performer. Mm -hmm the importance of presentation, but he's also a very, very sophisticated leader. And he clearly has an understanding of at least, uh, or, or somebody around him does, of the way American politics works because of the timing of the visit, uh, especially right before Christmas and the presentation of the flag, that image when he gave the Ukrainian flag signed by the Ukrainian soldiers to Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. the outgoing Speaker of the House, and Kamala Harris, who of course were sitting behind him on the dais, um, was, was, that was a pretty powerful moment. Um, so, you know, he understands that much was made of what he wore. Um, and cause he was wearing basically what's his trademark look now, which is he was wearing fatigues, you mm. know, kind of, uh, combat trousers and, and a, and a sweatshirt. Not unlike the one you're wearing right that now, David, exactly. which is I'm making a political color. statement. You are but the political statement is interesting because I think like Fidel Castro, who used to dress in combat fatigues, even when he was far from the front, you know, he, he was making, he was definitely making a statement and he understands the importance of that. There was a lot of criticism coming again from Magellan and on the right, but also on the right, I read some of it in this country. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, if you're visiting the president of the United States and speaking before Congress, you should wear a suit and tie. Sure. Winston Churchill visited the United States in 1941 and wore air raid overalls, mm. which he did not need to wear in Washington, D.C. in December of 1941 because he was making the very same point that Zelensky was making. You know, I am representing a nation at war and I'm a working leader. Mm. And, you know, it, so, so the, the, the visual was important in that. So, so I think that as far as the war itself, I think you're right. I think the war is likely to be prolonged. And the war appears to be a kind of turning point in the kind or a shift, there's a shifting of the global tectonic plates mm. going on, and this war and its wider repercussions are are part of that. Um, again, this is one where I de certainly won't make a prediction <laughs> because we don't know how it's going to play out, and so much depends on Vladimir Putin, and and he's impossible to predict. A couple things worry me about this. Well, many things worry me about it. One is there is no Politburo. Hmm. There's no succession plan in place in Russia. If Putin were to either die, he's there. Are some people making the claim that he's not in very good health. I don't know. I can't assess that. But he's 67 years old. He's, hmm. he's well over the life expectancy of a contemporary Russian male. Um, so 
Putin could die either by natural causes or unnatural causes. People do tend to fall out of windows and downstairs <laughs> in Russia quite or a lot. Or get poisoned. Yeah, yes. or get poisoned. Um, but we don't know who would be next and how they would respond. We shouldn't think that there's a kind of Václav Havel there waiting to kind of create a, a liberal democracy in Russia, although that would be the hope. Mm. Uh, it's a possibility, but it seems pretty remote. And we don't know how that would affect, what that would mean for the, for the war. So I think you're right. The war is not ending anytime soon. And the commitment to the war, it's a little bit like, and I don't want to make light of either of these things. It's kind of the way we all responded to COVID two years ago. Initially, there was a kind of banding together. We were clapping for healthcare workers, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of sense of community passed pretty quickly. And mm. I, want, I have a slight concern that the sympathy for Ukraine and the solidarity with Ukraine... Um, might dissipate the longer this war goes on, particularly as energy prices rise here mm. and elsewhere. Um, but also just the cost, the, the cost of the war, human and otherwise, begins to tell. I mean, where Britain, if it's not already in recession, is going into recession. That seems pretty certain. Uh, that's not a direct consequence of the war, but the war is not helping. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I'm a little bit worried about how steadfast the support for Ukraine is going to be in the same way that you saw the nurses were out on strike here in Britain last week and public opinion is generally sympathetic to the extent you can measure these things, but not universal. Yeah. We're long past the clapping for carers stage. And I wonder if the, the similarly, I, I don't want to push that comparison yeah. too far, but whether the, the, the enthusiasm for Ukraine might be harder to sustain yeah. in another year's time. I mean, I think maintaining public enthusiasm for anything is, is, profoundly politically challenging and you know um the nature of this war is going to uh, both in, in terms of its direct and indirect consequences are going to make that very hard over the next 12 months and Zelensky understands that which yeah. is why he made that trip i mean you know Zelensky is the leader of a country at war he left that country just as churchill did in 1941 mm. to go to the united states because he recognized this was a trip he had to make Previously, of course, people like Boris Johnson have been visiting Zelensky to try and attach themselves and you know get a little bit of fairy dust on sure. them uh, to refract in his. Yeah, that his did, didn't work out so well, but <laughs> well, except it, it, that aspect of you know Johnson when people when people you know when people were interviewed about Johnson's administration, they said one of the things he got right was Ukraine. I mean, his constant mm. attack association with Ukraine did work for him. It didn't overcome. Everything else. Everything else. Um, so, but but what's interesting is Zelensky, I think, is reading... This is one thing that gives me hope for the mm. Ukrainians and for the Ukrainian cause. Zelensky's a very effective leader. I'm really surprised, and presumably they've tried, that the Russians haven't killed him. Uh, because his leadership is... Seems to be very important. Really, really important. Really, really important. And again, that's not... A, I have no desire for the Russians to kill Volodymyr mm. Zelensky. I want to make that clear. Um, but anyway, so, so I, th I think that, that, that visit was a real turning point. Um, but yeah, so we've got to move on. Do we want to talk about Elon Musk? We've been going on for how Ouch. long have we been going to? Uh, 50 minutes. Let's, let, let's leave let's Elon leave Musk. Musk. I don't, hey, let's not end. Let, let's end the year on an upbeat note with Zelensky rather than, then, yes. if, if, if you're disappointed that we didn't talk about Twitter, you send us a message on Twitter and we'll, we'll <laughs> maybe we'll do it. So, right. Yeah. Uh, Elon Musk gets enough attention. We don't That's need to true. feed we don't his need ego. To, we don't need to feed it. We All right. Uh, time for last drops then, Frank. What'd you have? Uh, David, I want to, uh, I want to uh, praise a book by a, a, a scholar named Maurice. Maurizio Valzania. Maurizio is a professor of American history uh, uh, at the University of Turin in, in Italy. And he's published a book recently uh, called First Among Men, George Washington and the Myth of American Masculinity. The Myth of American well, Masculinity. And it came out in October of this year, October of 22, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And I, I want to confess an interest here. I know Maurizio very well. He's, he's an old friend of mine. This book you know, it's very difficult to write something original about somebody like George Washington, and Maurizio has done it in a really, really um, engaging way. And what Maurizio's looked at, so so that the subtitle is really important there, is the way notions of masculinity have changed over the years by looking at George Washington. So uh, historians and biographers in the two cent two hundred and twenty one years since Washington died, two hundred and twenty three years, excuse me, um, have stressed 
what a macho man George Washington was. His big thighs. His for big all thighs. thighs right. horses or whatever. It is. Um, yes, as Alexis Coe said in her biography a couple of years ago, she she derided the or she she described the the thigh men of history and wrote about George Washington's large thighs. But historians and biographers have stressed Washington's masculinity, mm. but they've done so refracted for, through the assumptions of whatever the masculine ideal of their own period was. All right, and so what. Maurizio's done is shown the way that Wash they said that Washington was very very aware of the way he presented himself physically, mm. but he comes across to us as a little bit of a dandy. He's a clothes horse for one thing. He buys lots of fancy clothes from London. He's upset when they don't fit properly because that was the masculine ideal of his period, mm. but it's not necessarily the masculine ideal of our period. And Maurizio's very very sophisticated and subtle in the way he he talks about. The way Washington presented himself, and it's a really engaging. It's quite amusing book because of the, the the material in there, and there's just there's just loads of of kind of nuggets of information in there. But it's a it, but making in service to a quite important and sophisticated argument. So that's one of well, I was thinking, well, what, what are the best books I've read this year? And that's one of the best books I've read this year. And I read it in the context of my own book, but uh, yeah, very pleased about that. What about you, David? Uh, oh, I want to recommend a podcast. Uh, called Articles of Interest by Avery uh, Truffleman, who's the, the producer of that. It's about history of clothes. Ah! You see, so just like George Washington being a clothes horse. Um, you know, so they talk, one of the episodes is about the history of the uh, men's suit and where that comes from. And, you know, actually the sort of connection with, with the American Revolution is, is part of that story. Um, and, you know, uh, if anyone who's ever seen me, I'm not a clothes guy, but uh, it was interesting to sort of think about the ways in which big historical forces do shape the kinds of, 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 of you know, clothes we wear and the choices we make both consciously and unconsciously about what we put on our bodies. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to recommend uh, Articles of Interest. Um, and they've been doing that show for a couple of years. They only do a few episodes a year, but it's uh, high-quality stuff. So, so it's fitting in this season of excess eating that you and I, who, again, if luckily we're not... We're not streaming this on YouTube while we record it because we're a couple of slobs. Um, where we're, both of our last drops are about bodies and how people present Gen themselves. Right. So I'm about to yes. put on a sweatshirt <laughs> and hide. And loosen my belt. Yeah. Right. Happy cheers, New Year, David. Cheers. Happy New Year, listeners. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.